0: The reading this morning is taken from Acts chapter 17, and beginning to read at verse 16. So you'll find this on page 1113 of the P Bible., um, yeah, so Acts 17, beginning to read at verse 16. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that a city was full of idols. So he reasoned in a synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with him. Some of them asked, What is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, He seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus where they said to him, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears and we want to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious, for as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. Now what you worship as something unknown I am going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands and he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. From one man he made every nation of men that they should inherit the whole earth. And he determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by man's design and skill. In the past God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, for he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. A few men became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, and a woman called Damaris and a number of others. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Um, Let's just open in a brief word of prayer before we start. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we can come before you to consider your word. We pray, Lord, that you will speak to us now. We pray that you will send your Holy Spirit to open our minds, to open our hearts to the truth of your word. And we ask all this in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. Now, if you've been with us for the past few weeks, then you will know that we're in the middle of a short series on conversion stories in the book of Acts, a short series looking at different people who were converted, who came to put their faith in Christ. In the last two weeks, we've looked at the conversion of the Ethiopian, of the African, And we've also looked at the conversion of the Jew, Jew, of Saul, of Tarsus. Now, we've got two left. Next week, Lord willing, I'll be taking us through the conversion of the European, a man by the name of Cornelius. But today, we're looking at the conversion of the Greeks, the Athenians. Now, if you were transported back to visit the city of Athens at its peak in its heyday, 2,500 years ago, then you'd be very, very impressed. You'd be struck by their achievements. You see, Athens was the city of art. Athens gave birth to the human sculpture and the form that was subsequently imitated imitated in Europe for hundreds of years afterwards. Athens was the city of literature and of theatre, It gave birth to the classical Greek plays and poetry from writers like Sophocles and Euripides. Athens was the city of ideas. Athens gave birth to Socrates, to Plato, to Aristotle. It even gave birth to our system of government, to democracy. So what the small city of Athens achieved over two and a half thousand years ago really makes our sophisticated society look fairly backward and mundane by comparison. So their achievements were pretty amazing. And this was all from a population about the size of Basingstoke. Maybe we really are thick of head, as someone keeps reminding us. (laughs) By the time Paul got there, though, Athens had faded somewhat. So they'd been conquered by the Romans in 146 B.C. And now, Athens was in the twilight of their glory days. But they were still very impressive. It was still regarded as the intellectual and cultural capital of the empire of the Romans. But what struck Paul wasn't any of these things. What struck Paul, above all, was the fact that Athens was the city of gods. Athens was the city of gods. There were idols everywhere. There was an idol for Aphrodite, the goddess of beauty. There were idols for Artemis, the goddess of fertility and wealth. There were statues for all the gods of the Olympus. Statues in brass, in stone, in silver, in gold, in ivory, and in marble. For Zeus, for Ares, for Apollo, for Jupiter, for Venus, for Mercury, for Neptune, for Diana, and it went on and on and on and on. There was a huge gold and ivory statue of Athena in the Parthenon, which stood 60 feet high, the gleam of which could be seen from miles and miles away. There was a Roman satirist in Paul's time, who was touring around and he visited Athens. And he wasn't exaggerating when he said, it's easier to find a god in Athens than it is to find a man. Athens was a city of gods. And that is what struck Paul. Paul wasn't struck by the magnificent sculptures. He wasn't struck by the amazing architecture. He wasn't struck by the wonderful ideas or the sophisticated plays like we might have been on our tourist visit of Athens. Paul was struck He was upset, he was distressed at the fact that this was a people in the grip of idolatry. Verse 16, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. They were caught in the grip of idolatry. Now, they also had plenty of ideas, they had plenty of philosophies, they had plenty of thoughts about the nature of reality, about the world we live in, about the people that we are, about the mysteries of life. And Paul engaged with some of those ideas as he sought to tell them what the gospel really said. Verse 17, so he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-believing Greeks, the God-fearing Greeks also in the marketplace. Now, the marketplace wasn't just the place where you went to buy your bread and your eggs and your milk. The marketplace was where you went to hear the latest news. It was where you went to discover what threats the city was under. It was where you went to hear what the latest ideas and debates and discussions were. It was where you went to discover what the decisions of the city council would be, because they would surely impact your life. That was the marketplace. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Now the Epicureans had been around for a while. As a movement they had been founded some 300 years earlier and they basically believed that any God which may exist is completely disinterested and in fact completely unaware of our irrelevant little world. They believed that there is no life after death. They believed that there is no judgment because any God was completely uninterested. They believed that our world is a world which came about purely by chance, by a random collision of particles. No deity was involved. That may sound a little bit familiar to you. The Stoics. The Stoics had been around just as long as the Epicureans. They basically believed that there is a God. There is a God of sorts. He's all around us. He's part of the soul of the world, as it were. So we must live in harmony with this God. We must live in harmony with this God in nature and in reason, and we must do whatever it takes to live in harmony with this God of nature and reason that we are all part of. That may also sound a little bit familiar to you. Now, if Paul were to arrive in 21st century England, what would he conclude? Well, I suspect he'd take one look at our cars, he'd take a look at our buildings, he'd look at our smartphones, he'd look at Facebook, he would look at Instagram, and he would conclude that while our idols are that much more subtle, they are still just as real as the idols of the Athenians. And we are still just as much in their grip. I suspect he'd agree with what Tim Keller says in his book called Counterfeit Gods, This is what Keller says. What are the gods of beauty, power, money, and achievement but these same things that have assumed mythic proportions in our lives and in our society? We may not physically kneel before the statue of Aphrodite, but our young women are driven into depression and eating disorders by an obsessive concern over their body image. We may not actually burn incense to Artemis but when money and career are raised to cosmic proportions we perform a kind of child sacrifice, neglecting family and community to achieve greater wealth and a higher place in the priesthood of business. I suspect Paul would agree. I suspect he'd take one look at our belief systems and he would see a striking familiarity. He'd see that the Epicurean-like beliefs in us originating from a random collision of particles and Stoic-like beliefs of us living in harmony with the God of nature are very much alive and well. I suspect he'd echo what the writer of Ecclesiastes said some 3,000 years ago. What has been... Will be again. What has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one can say, look, this is something new? It was already here long ago, it was here before our time. There is nothing new under the sun. I suspect that's what Paul, looking at 21st century England, would echo. And I suspect he would then say exactly what he said to the Athenians. And what he said to them firstly was this. He said, there is only one true God. There is only one true God. So look at verse 22. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus. Now, the Areopagus is basically the name for the city council. Okay? The guys that ruled Athens. Now, they weren't as powerful as they once had been, so obviously the Romans had largely stripped them of their military might, but they still controlled religion, they still controlled education, they still controlled the economy, they still controlled the law. And they had brought Paul from that marketplace we saw earlier, and they would brought him to hear what these new ideas were that he was spouting on about, what he was talking about. And they called him to a meeting of the city council, and they said to him, speak, we want to hear So Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus, and he said, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. Now what you worship as something unknown, I am going to proclaim to you. Now we don't know much about the altar that Paul saw, and we don't know too much about the inscription, but we do have a little bit more information, because there was a writer by the name of Pausanias. It's P-A-U-S-A-N-I-A-S, to help you overcome the accent. Pausanias, I think. Now you may be surprised to know that Pausanias wrote the 2nd century AD TripAdvisor travel blog. Okay. He wrote a travel journal, and he traveled extensively throughout Greece, and his blog, which came out at around 175 AD, was entitled A Description of Greece. And in his blog, Pausanias talks about how he visited a number of temples in and around Greece, in particular in and around Athens. And he talks about the fact that five miles to the southeast of Athens, he came to a number of temples, and he saw a number of altars which said, altars of the God named unknown. Just like Paul had seen. Now, we're not sure exactly what they believed about this God, this unknown God. But it seems, from what Paul goes on to say, that to them, this God could explain the inexplicable. To them, this was the God you had to have because there were things that happened that couldn't be explained by going to the other gods in the pantheon of gods. This was a God you needed because you knew that your existing gods had shortcomings. And even as a group, your existing gods were not all powerful. And so there were things that could not be explained. And so it must be down to an unknown God, to whom you then erected an altar. So Paul looks at this altar to an unknown God and he says, what you worship as something unknown, I am going to proclaim to you. And his message, what he proclaims is basically that there is only one true God. There is only one true God. And he goes on to show them that the one true God is your creator sustainer if you don't mind, a hyphenated title. The one true God is your creator, sustainer. That's the first thing he shows them. Verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything, because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. So Paul points out how ridiculous it would be to think that the God who made the world, the Lord of heaven and earth, can be contained by brick walls and mortar. He points out how ridiculous it would be to think that this God, this Lord of heaven and earth, is dependent on us for anything. He is not served by human hands as if he needed anything, Paul says. In effect, what Paul is doing is he's showing up their puny gods by pointing to the creator-sustainer God of the book of Genesis, without mentioning Genesis, and proclaiming that that one true God personally created everything, including every man and every woman. And he proclaims it would be ridiculous for us to think that that God would need us to sustain him. He doesn't need anything from us. He's beyond us, Paul says. In fact, he transcends us. And it's us who are dependent on God because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. He is our creator. He is our sustainer. We need him. He doesn't need us. That's the first thing he says. There is only one true God who is your creator, sustainer. And then he goes on. And he shows them that the one true God is also the source of your being. He is the source of your being. Verse 26. From one man he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by man's design and skill. So as I mentioned before, the Epicureans had this view that God was remote, that God was detached, and that our world came about by a random collision of particles without any involvement from any deity. But Paul makes it clear that the Epicureans have got it completely wrong, those men that are sitting there. He makes it clear that God is not remote and detached. Yes, he's showed us that God is supreme. Yes, he showed us that God transcends us. Yes, he has showed us that God is beyond us, and he showed us that God is far greater than us. He showed us that he is the supreme God of the universe, but he's also deeply involved and he is with us. He has his hand over creation. He determined the times and the exact places for every nation of men. He's close enough for you to reach out, and he's close enough for you to find him. He is not far from each one of us. And what's more, he's the one who is the source of your being. In him we live and move and have our being, As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. He's quoting a Stoic poet, which is very clever, because these guys are sitting there. He's quoting a Stoic poet poet by the name of Aratus. And what he's saying is that all human beings are, in a sense, descended from God. We are all made in his image. Not physically, but, in a sense, metaphysically. God is a creator. We are creative. God has emotions, we have emotions. God loves, and so we love. We are descended from him, we are made in his image. We're not just a random collocation of a bunch of particles of no more value than the ant you stepped on on the way to church. We are made in the image of the eternal God, and we are his offspring. So, those are the two points Paul makes. He firstly makes the point that God is your creator sustainer, the one true God, and he makes the point that the one true God is the source of your being. And what we need to notice is that subtly in making those two points, what Paul is actually doing is that he's showing the Athenians and he's showing us the true nature of their and our idolatry. He's showing that regardless of whether the idols are material or immaterial, regardless of whether they are physical objects or all-consuming hopes and dreams, and regardless of whether it's a wooden idol on your mantelpiece or a status idol in your next promotion, he's showing us the true nature of idolatry and that it is unacceptable to the one true God. He's showing us the, the nature of idolatry and he's showing us that it has a number of characteristics that we need to be aware of. It has the characteristic of control. Idolatry is us trying to control the creator of the universe by localizing him and placing him under our hands. Idolatry is, it, it, it has the characteristic of dependence. Idolatry is us trying to domesticate the sustainer of life by making him dependent on us. Idolatry has the characteristic of image-bearing. It's us trying to demote and reduce the source of our being into an image of our making. He's shown us that what we want is we want a God who is under our control, who depends on us, and who is of our making. He's shown us that what we actually want is a tame and a domesticated God who is a pet that needs us more than we need him. He's showing that I want a God that I can control, that does not control me. He's showing that I want a God that I'm not dependent on, but that is dependent on me. And he's showing us that I want a God who's not, in whose image I am not made in, but who is made in mine. Someone once said that the human heart is a factory of idols. Isn't that what's going on with all of us? Isn't it at root that it is nothing but an attempt at role reversal? I want God's place. He must take mine. He's not the God in my life. I am. That's what idolatry at root is. He's not the God in my life. I am. It's what John Stott calls a perverse, topsy-turvy expression of and of our human rebellion against God. A perverse, topsy-turvy expression of our human rebellion against God. And it's also what led Paul to then say one more thing at the end of his speech, right? So namely that the one true God isn't just your creator, sustainer, and that he isn't just the source of your being, he is also your judge. Verse 30. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Now, when Paul says God overlooked such ignorance or overlooked what people without the law were doing in their idolatry, then he doesn't mean that God just let it go and just swept it, swept it under the carpet. He means that God has been patient, He means that God has graciously held back judgment, but now he calls all people everywhere to repent. As he says, because or for, he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. Paul's come full circle right? So what he did in the beginning was he highlighted the fact that the Athenians acknowledged that they were ignorant of the one true God, of the unknown God. And now he comes back to that ignorance, and he says it's no excuse. He says it's no excuse. He says says that you are still culpable, you are still liable, because as he says in verse 17, he is not far from us, he is near us. And he puts it even more directly and more succinctly in his letter to the Romans when he says this. He says, even Gentiles, even those who didn't get the law that God gave Moses, even Gentiles who do not have God's written law show that they know his law when they instinctively obey it, even without having heard it. They show that God's law is written in their hearts For their own conscience and thoughts either accuse them or tell them that they are doing right. Their conscience and thoughts accuse them and tell them that they are doing right. We are all culpable and we prove it when we respond to what our conscience demands of us because God's law is written in our hearts. As Paul says in his address to the Athenians, he is not far from us. And then Paul, in his close, highlights the fact that Christ will return as the judge. So he highlights the fact, firstly, that it is definite and it's unavoidable. Verse 31, he has set a day. It's indelibly marked in the calendar. He highlights the fact that it will be universal. He has set a day when he will judge the world. Everyone, no matter who we are, no matter our station in life, no matter what we might think of this God, will be called out to give a defense. He highlights the fact that it will be a righteous and a just judgment. He has set a day when he will judge the world with justice. Everything will be revealed. There will be total justice. There will be recompense. And he highlights the fact that it is Christ who will return in judgment. He has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He's given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. It's Christ who will return. It's Christ who will return, and his resurrection is the proof that he will return. His resurrection was the proof that he was who he claimed to be, the Savior of the world. His resurrection was the proof that he paid the price for sin, but importantly what Paul highlights here is that his resurrection is the proof that he will return, that he will return in judgment of the living and of the dead. Ben Palpant is the author of a book entitled A Small Cup of Light. The book's about how Ben encountered God in the midst of extreme suffering. Near the end of the book, Ben talks about a visit to his mentor, a man he'd known for many years who had also been his Sunday school teacher. He says this, I visited him one day to seek his advice about my affliction, and he asked me a rather strange question. What is your definition of an idol? I gazed at his grizzled beard and bushy eyebrows. Uh, Anything I love more than I love God, I explained as though in Sunday school again. He seemed disappointed. He called my answer both uncreative and inaccurate. Everyone says that, he said, but it's only partially true. An idol is actually anything that promises to deliver you from death. And that's Paul's ultimate point in the Areopagus talking to them, and for us in 21st century Basingstoke. His point is that the only one that can deliver you from a final death is the source of life itself and that is the Lord Jesus Christ, which he did do for a number of the Athenians. Verse 34, a few men became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. So if you're just thinking about Christianity, and you haven't yet taken that final step, then Paul's message for you is that the one true God your sustainer, your creator, the source of your being, commands you to repent of your sin. And he assures you that you will be gloriously reconciled to him if you do that. And some of them were. Even a man called Dionysius, a council member of the Areopagus, who ironically was actually named after one of their gods. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you. Thank you for your word to us this morning. Thank you for the reminder of the pitfalls of worshipping anything but you. Thank you for the reminder that only by your grace and by your mercy through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, will we be able to stand before you on the day of judgment. And so we earnestly ask and pray, Lord, that you would extend your saving grace to everyone who is here in your presence today. And we ask this in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.